This is Jim Riley's Words and Music Podcast. Hey, how are you? Hey there. Hey, Hello. Hello. I sure can, yeah. Uh, this is James okay. Hey, there you are. What does it take to be an early adopter, a first follower? More than that, what does it take to be an early adopter who sticks with it for more than 45 years and becomes an integral part of the movement he helped create? Those are the questions Mike Kolwitz digs into in his new memoir, Stick With It, Adventures of a Chapman Stick Player. I'm going to let Mike tell you about the Chapman stick, what makes it different, where you've heard it without knowing you're hearing it, because that's really only the tip of the iceberg. The heart of Mike's story is about connection. It's about finding your path and staying true to that path as the root twists, turns, dead ends, and branches off in unforeseen directions. I've known Mike for a long time. We've talked for hours, we've shared stories, music, philosophies, but full disclosure, we've never actually been in the same room together. And that comes back to connection. We have an incredibly strong connection through the instrument we both play, the Chapman Stick community we're a part of, and our love and respect for Emmett Chapman, the man behind the instrument. Being a true first adopter, I can't think of a better person than Mike to kick off this podcasting journey with me. I hope you enjoy. All right. Well, let's uh, let's dive in, and this is this is fun for me too. You're you're the officially the first uh, first person for this little podcast experiment that I'm doing. So I and I appreciate that too. That's uh, it's a uh, it's uh, nice nice to have a friendly a friendly first victim. Oh, first victim. Well, that's all right. <laughs> you know, if it doesn't work out, then you know we can always do it again. Awesome. I I I gotta thank you because. If it wasn't for you, I don't even know if I'd ever have finished that book. It, it was just your encouragement. You kept pushing me, saying, come on, man, you can do it. Yeah, it's not easy, but you can do it. And and giving, giving me the uh, advice to read Stephen King's On Writing. Mm-hmm. I read that book three times cover to cover. Wow. Yeah. And uh, it, it made all the difference. But if, if it wasn't for you, I don't think I'd ever even have finished it. Thing. So God bless you. I, I mailed your copy out a week ago. They said it would take two weeks. So. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to holding it in my hand and I, I appreciate that, but honestly, you know, you did the hard work, um, you know, and, and so I, you know, I, I absolutely appreciate that, but um, you know, the, the credit goes to you for really for getting it done. Uh, and it's such a good book and it's such a good story. And I think that's honestly, that, that was my reason for encouraging you and helping you out um, because it is such a good story. Well, I'm, I'm glad you think so because, you know, when you write something, you're thinking, oh, is anyone going to read it? Do they care? You know, I finally came to the conclusion, hey, man, it's just my story, nothing more. If you don't like it, okay, it's not going to change the world or anything, but at least I did it. Um, I, I don't even know if my own kids will read the damn thing. So <laughs> so what was, the, what was the impetus when you were kind of sitting down? Where, where did that kind of flash of insight you know, come to say, I'm going to, I'm going to write down my, my experiences. And if I've done the math right, it's 47 years of playing this instrument. No, I can tell you exactly when and where it took place in May of 2018 in new Orleans. I was at the intercontinental hotel and I went there for the ZMR music awards and I'm at a cocktail party. It sounds funny. I don't even drink, but I'm at a cocktail party and I'm talking to a couple of other musicians 
And they're saying, we're just talking, we're just swapping stories. You know, it's like, well, okay, well, here, listen to this one. And they kept telling me the same thing. They just kept looking and said, you ought to write a book. You ought to write a book. And on the plane home, I kept thinking, well, you know, maybe, maybe that's not a bad idea. So I just started jotting down all these stories I could remember. And pretty soon I had so many stories in this little notebook. I thought, yeah, I guess I could. So over the summer of 2018, I, I wrote well, basically, uh, I think it was about a hundred and two thousand word manuscript, and then I read it and I didn't like it, and I thought, well, the only people who are going to read that might be family and friends, and I just sort of set it aside for a few years, and then uh, summer of last year, I decided to pull it out and polish it off and see if I could really turn it into something, and using the the examples that Stephen King gave, I chopped it down quite a bit and just, you know, anything that wasn't the story I took out. Yeah. It's, it's a, it was unique for two reasons. Uh, it's unique because you've stuck with it and that's an intentional, you know, nod to the, to the title of the book, but you've stuck with it for so long, but also the, the stick, the instrument that you're playing. Uh, and I want to talk about both, but, but let's talk about the instrument first. Um, and I guess the, the easiest kind of way to frame it is, is why the stick, but why, what was it that attracted you to that instrument in the first place? Emmett Chapman. It's just that simple. I was a 19 year old kid in Southern California. I played the trumpet for 10 years in school bands. And after high school, I got a job for one year in a music store. One day I'm sitting in the back room thumbing through trade magazines and I saw one of the very first ads for the stick and it had the distinctive, you know, Emmett Stickman logo. And I go, wow, that looks kind of weird. And, you know, we're talking 1976, so there's no internet. I wrote away for information, started corresponding with the Chapmans and then Emmett came to play at UC Riverside and I was at that show and I was in the front row and I was just, I was just blown away. I fell in love with it immediately. And I talked to Emmett out back and he put his instrument on me and said, yeah, yeah, you look like you could play this thing. Sure. No problem. And that's all I could think about from that day forward. And it just became my instrument. I, I was never a keyboardist. Um, and I wasn't much of a guitarist. I knew five or six chords. So, the stick was it, and I just stuck with it. Um, was it the uniqueness of the instrument? Was it the sound of the instrument? Was it the energy that Emma was creating, and you wanted to be a part of that? You know, what do you think was like the that attraction? It was the versatility. This is a period in time when synthesizers were just becoming commercially available to the average musician, and Roland was one of the very first manufacturers and this little music store I worked at was one of the first Roland dealers. The, uh, the owner was a, you know, real old school, old guy. And he goes, ah, I don't want any newfangled stuff. So write me a report. So I wrote him a report on the synthesizer and he figured, well, yeah, maybe he could make some money off of it. So I was really attracted to the versatility of synthesizers. You could literally do anything. And then I saw the stick, and it was totally different. But the way Emmett approached it, 
it was it was mystical. Mm. It, it was mystical. It was obscure. Nobody knew about it. It was weird. All the things I love. Mm. So that was kind of it for me. And you know, Emmett, his persona is just he was he was a mysterious kind of character in the beginning until you get to know him and then you realize what an intelligent gentle warm human being he is but his uh, outgoing persona was just mysterious mm. i loved it <laughs> <laughs> i loved it i go wow this is the guy for me this instrument is just so freaky weird all my friends could you know shred on guitar and i really couldn't do anything so, hey, when I get a, a freaky weird instrument, they wouldn't know if I was good or not. That's nice, yeah. How long did it take you to kind of to, to, to find your way around on it? I think, well, if you ask me, I feel it was about 10 years before it really started actually sounding like music to me. But Emmett needed some help at these trade shows. So three years later, he invited me to help him at you know my very first trade show. So I guess he thought I was, just good enough so he at least get a break. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about those those really early days. You know, you talk, there, there's no internet, there's no, you know, you have to, to call or, or write a letter to Stick Enterprises and they, you know, send you some photocopied pages with with uh, lessons on them. Tell me about those those really early days when the instrument was was brand new. It's newer than it is now, to be honest. I, it's funny, I, I think that even now it is, it is um, in many ways a brand new instrument. Um, but tell me about those really early days. Sure. Um, well, take, for example, the fact that the very first known musical instruments were bone flutes 4,000 years ago. In that context, the stick at only 49 years old is an infant. Mm. Yeah, it's still new. The early days were, like you said, there was no Internet. Everything was done by telephone or mail. And I corresponded frequently with Emmett. I've saved every last one of those letters, and they're one of my you know, treasured personal possessions. But the first day that I went to pick up my instrument, he gave me a lesson for three hours, and my head was ready to explode. On my way home, I pulled into an Arby's roast beef restaurant on Sunset Boulevard just before getting on the freeway and it was almost like I was in a trance and I went in and I just wrote down everything I could possibly remember and I did that every lesson for over 10 years because he gave so much information there's just no way I could remember it all I was afraid I'd forget it in the you know two hours it took me to drive home so a lesson was pretty much an all-day thing I lived in Riverside, California, about 75 miles east, and you had to drive through, you know, the maze of Los Angeles freeways. There's no direct route to Emmett's house when he lived in Laurel Canyon. You had to go right through downtown Hollywood and take all these little back roads up into the hills, and he lived way the heck up there. And after that first lesson, a couple of days later, he called me at home to apologize. And I still remember to this day because... My roommate at the time, Roger Harp, he was drinking beer, listening to, I don't know, Grateful Dead, Marshall Tucker. And the phone rang, and he picked it up and goes, that was a really loud ring. And it was Emmett. <laughs> you know, he was just being, just being silly, and Emmett apologized for trying to give me so much stuff. And I just, I just thought that was so thoughtful of him. And 
well, that was pretty much how we started, and we just kept doing that for about 10 years. Right. The early trade shows were so much different than they were uh, than they are now. The first trade show I went to was the NAM show in 79, and at that time, the entire show was held in the ballroom of the Disneyland Hotel. Wow. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, now it takes up half of Anaheim and 10 hotels yes. and a convention center. Yeah. yeah. Back then, it was just, you know, just the big ballroom. And so that was kind of the beginning, and I did a, a number of trade shows with him, and I kind of follow him around Southern California, uh, you know, trying to be helpful and you know, just trying to be around the master and mm-hmm. in hopes that uh, you know, some of his talent and musical DNA would rub off on me. Yeah. I did a show with him once. Well, I didn't do a show. I helped him with his gear. I was a, kind of his roadie. And he was at the Golden Bear in Huntington Beach, California. And I was wearing sandals. It was summertime. And I dropped one of his cabinets right on my big toe. Oh, <laughs> oh it, it turned, you know, into an elephant toe. It turned purple. The The entire nail came off and it finally grew back later. But I realized that wasn't exactly the best footwear. So I just kind of followed him around everywhere. I'd go to every event of his that I possibly could. He played at one time with the drummer from the Knack, a guy named Bruce Gary, yeah. and the two of them together were just, I don't know, they had something going, some kind of you know, deep mystical uh, mind meld thing, but uh, they had so much fun and they would, just, they would just go out, you know, go to outer space with the music and somehow they'd bring it all back and smile and had a great time. Wow. What were the reactions to some of the the players, and I'm thinking, you know, a, a trade show, and you've got the industry guys there. What were their What were their reactions to to the instrument? They were blown away. In the very beginning, it was, "Wow, who? Why didn't someone think of that sooner?" I mean, you know, yeah, there been people tapping on instruments before, but this guy Emmett, he's he's in a whole different caliber. He's created an entire technique and then literally built the instrument to accommodate it. Yeah. You know, some people just the other way around. Okay, I'm going to build this cool new instrument. We'll figure out how to play it later. But this instrument was because, well, basically Emmett wanted to be, uh, he wanted to be able to do arrangements like jazz, you know, complicated jazz piano arrangements and be Jimi Hendrix all at the same time. And he just took this guitar, which had been played for hundreds of years the same way, and just kind of looked at it and go, well, what if I could play this like a piano? What if it were possible? And well, you know the rest of the story. Yeah. Matter of fact, you wrote it very well in the book, <laughs> Stick Man. And Thank you. Appreciate that. Anytime I new stick that. players ask me, <laughs> well, if they ask me for advice on how should I start, one of the very first things I tell them is read Jim Riley's book, Stick Man. Yeah. You've got to know the history, who Emmett was, where he came from, how this came to be. Yeah. Well, once again, you're you're far too kind, but I do appreciate that very much. Um, but I think you hit the nail on the head. Is the technique. And he created the technique first and then spent the time to build the instrument around the technique. 
and, right. and you know, it took four years, five years to do that. Um, sure. And but but still, even the you know the um, evolutions of the instrument and the the fine tuning that he did over you know for the rest of his life um, was in aid of the the instrument. And there's so many subtle things, you know, like the angle of the belt hook, which puts the hands just in the right place, you know, and the way he files the frets down so that the um, the relief is different in the middle because the you have you got the uh, the thicker strings in the middle. Um, you know, it's all, it's all genius for sure, but all really fueled from that technique. And I think that's, that's really what, what makes the, um, what makes it work so well. I don't think the average stick player or musician really understands what Emmett did to make it so incredibly playable. And over the years, he invented different types of frets. The, the very first ironwood sticks the belt hook was all made out of wood yeah he had fashioned you know three pieces of wood and put that together the pickup was made out of wood and he drilled holes just so the pole pieces could stick up and the very first sticks had um, extra jumbo large guitar frets you know made out of a nickel alloy mm -hmm. and you know the problem with guitar frets is you know, they wear down over time nickel Alloy is a you know a softer metal, and so you hear about guitarists. Oh, I had to get everything refretted. Well, Emmett said that's ridiculous. Here you got stainless steel. Why don't I make them out of stainless steel? Sure. You'd never have to refret, and I'd only have to do the work once. And he came out with the very first fret rods, which you know that's just a tiny little um, improvement on the stick, but it was brilliant. And then years later, he goes. You know, if they were shaped more diamond tip kind of a shape, they might tap better. And boom, there you have fret rails. So stick players are just so incredibly lucky because all of Emmett's uh, hard work and refinements, ways to make this instrument so playable. I think stick players are some of the luckiest people in the world. There's millions of people out there that would just love to know about the stick. Other musicians that don't even know it exists. So if you're a stick player and you're listening, you're in a, you're in a special group and we're super, super lucky yeah. that we can, uh, you know, that we can continue forward with Emmett's legacy as our foundation. I think we're some of the luckiest musicians in the world. Wow. Tell me about that stick community and you, you sort of touched on it there. Um, it is, it is a special group of, of people for sure. Um, but yeah, tell me about that, that community. And again, you were, you were there from its very inception and, you know, carrying through right till, till today. Well, the, in the beginning, it was hard to, the only place you'd see other stick players would be at an AM show typically because we, we would all gravitate around Emmett in the you know late seventies and early eighties. And there wasn't very many of us. So everyone knew everyone, but the only way to keep in touch would be, you know, phone and letter in the mid eighties with the proliferation of, uh, personal computers. Uh, some of the very first, uh, very first things that happened were bulletin boards for stick players. And, you know, back then they had all kinds of stuff like flame wars. If somebody said something, someone was offended. And <laughs> but the, the computer allowed the stick community worldwide to suddenly be able to keep in touch with one another. And now you could send uh, sheet music via the internet 
back and forth. And I think the personal computer was the best thing that ever happened to the stick community because now we knew who we were. Well, you know, you could get in touch with these people much easier than, you know, trying to call somebody on another continent or writing letters back and forth, which, you know, a lot of us actually did, but it's slow. So I'd say computer is the best thing that ever happened to the stick community. Tell me about your, tell me about your music. How many, how many albums do you have now? Um, I think it's more than 20. Yeah. <laughs> I've had over 30 releases, but they're all kinds of different things. My very, very first release, don't laugh, it was titled Stick Stuff. Nice. <laughs> Terrible <laughs> title. It was six songs on an audio cassette in the mid-90s. Okay. I started playing in 76, and I had a, a period of my life where it was just mostly menial jobs. I didn't have a college degree. And then I got into professional sales in the mid-80s, and I learned how to sell two-way radio systems to business industry, state, local, federal government. And I stayed in that career for about 20 years. I did really well with it, but I always played the stick on the side. Yeah. And, you know, so I had a family, a couple of mortgages, car payments, all of that stuff. And I couldn't find a way to really make that much money with the stick at the time. And I didn't think that my, you know, I didn't think my playing technique was all that great anyway. Apparently other people said, yeah, it's good enough. <laughs> but, you know, I always kind of felt like I was sort of like an imposter. Oh no, they're going to, they're going to realize what a fraud I am. And uh, so, but I always did, you know, two or three jobs every month on the side, places like coffee shops, uh, you know, Italian restaurants, stuff like that in addition to my day job in the two-way radio industry. Wow. And so when did it, when did it change then? When did that, that realization, when did you start agreeing with everybody that you actually did know what you were doing and, and things sounded pretty good? When did, when did that happen? It'll be in the mid nineties. Okay. Uh, I, I left California in the late eighties, early nineties. I moved from Riverside, California, and we bought a beautiful equestrian property in Scottsdale, Arizona. And for me, Arizona was, it was, it was the perfect place, the perfect time. Everything was different. The people were different, the landscape, the city. And, you know, here I am close to Phoenix, which is now one of the fifth or sixth largest metro areas in the U.S. So it really opened up a lot of doors. I, I, started going out with the stick and you know i'd like to walk into an open mic and you open the stick case and you bring this thing out and all of a sudden there's a hush people are looking like what the heck is that <laughs> and if you do something cool uh you'd meet people so i met drummers i got invited to come on to a local radio show from there i met a local record producer someone who had worked with you know people like paul mccartney he liked the stick and he also got one and he did the very first recordings of me with drums in the mid 90s in phoenix and those were the songs that ended up on my first release which was just a, simply an audio cassette and that was really the time when i go wow you know, with the right people and equipment, this really sounds neat. And those were my very first 
very first songs, actually. And one of them was a novelty piece titled Severe Tire Damage. And we put we put in the sound of screeching tires and auto collisions and breaking glass. It was kind of like the Manny Moen Jack of the stick. I had heard a lot of stick recordings and I'd always felt like, wow, these are all just so serious, mm. you know, classical, very serious. And I just wanted to be the complete opposite. I sort of felt like the class clown. So I figured severe tire damage. And it was on the very first compilation of stick players from around the world. Tapestry One by Casey Ariaga. Yes, I remember that. I know that well. It's I still have the CD in my in my collection of CDs. Mm-hmm. Casey, Casey was really, really a great student and a great guy. He lived in Orange County, and he came to my house in Riverside several times for lessons. And I, if there were stick players anywhere nearby. I tried to lure him to Riverside and give me a lesson. I was able to do that once with Jim Lampy. Oh, good. When yeah. he, he came home to visit his family in Azusa, and he wanted to buy a new Apple computer for his uh, graphics design business. Who are some other stick players that you that you like? Uh, Leo Gosselin. Love him. Matter of fact, I was just trying to get in touch with him this morning. Fellow Canadian. Yeah, yeah, fantastic, fantastic player. It's just amazing. Um, I also like Larry Tuttle. I remember when he was playing with the Freeway Philharmonic Group. Mm-hmm. He came, uh, I was living in Scottsdale, and they played at the uh, Scottsdale Center for the Arts. And so it was really neat to go to that performance, and you know, we were able to talk afterwards because we had a certain camaraderie as stick players. <laughs> so that was great. Um, I've always been a big, big fan of Don Schiff. Mm. Uh, as much for his just personality and sense of humor as I am for all of the things he has done. Uh, the, the, the shows in Las Vegas and Margaret, Raquel Welch, playing on all these different albums. And then the way he just took to the NS stick like a fish does to water. Yeah. Emmett gave him one of the first prototypes, and <clears throat> I don't think Emmett ever got it back <laughs> because Don just found that it was just the coolest thing. And uh, personally, I've never even touched an NS stick, and I'd love to try one someday. Yeah, it's a different beast. Um, but you're right, yeah, Don really took to that, and that's his instrument. Um, and I don't. I think I think he does have that prototype still. I I, I think you're right. I don't think that ever came. Oh, out. I'm sure he does. Yeah. I'm sure he does. One of the one of the things I really like in the book is sort of the 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 brushes with greatness and the you know the big players who stop by and and um, you know and either pick up the instrument or or are afraid of the instrument or kind of you know have a have a, a you know that reaction to the instrument. Um, so t- tell me about a couple of kind of of those brushes of greatness, um, you know, with big players. But I also think that's an interesting subtext to the story too, um, because the stick still, you know, it doesn't have its Jimi Hendrix yet. And, and, yep. and that's a, you know, I think that's still to come, but I think that's an interesting sort of, you know, subtext to that story. Um, tell me about a couple of those, those kind of brushes with, with greatness. A lot of musicians 
attended the NAMM shows. So it wouldn't be unusual, even, you know, back then you'd, you'd uh, walk past Neil Schoen, the guitar, uh, lead guitarist from Journey. Uh, you'd see Mark Mothersbaugh, the, the, the uh, brainchild behind that kind of wacky new wave group called Devo. Um, we've had a lot of people come to the booth. I remember meeting Alan Holdsworth. He came to the booth. And at one trade show, we had headphones, so you could come up and you could try the stick, but you know, you just put on the headphones and it wouldn't, you know, create a ruckus or a lot of noise. And you could have a lot of people trying out. Well, this quiet, long-haired man came up to me and, and asked me about the stick, and I realized I'm talking to Steve Morris, who is the lead guitarist to the Dixie Dregs, who just happened to be one of my favorite groups at the time. And he was just so quiet and so humble. And I gave him the stick and I you know, I'd set him up here, do this, do this. And I just left him alone for about 10 minutes. And then he takes the headphones off and goes, I'm sorry, but it's just not for me. And he walked away just as quietly, quietly as he had walked up. Uh, another good story was, and this was from Emmett, but... And it told me at a lesson, he goes, wow, last week, these guys from Toto, there's two of them in Toto, they want to buy a stick together and give it a try. And so he sold the stick, and one of them sent his girlfriend over. Well, the girlfriend happened to be Rosanna Arquette. At, you know, and at the beginning of her her uh, very successful acting career, and Emmett said he opened the door and he said she looked like an angel. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't there at the time. But you know, Emmett said, "Wow, she was just so beautiful." I opened the door; I couldn't believe she was standing there. <laughs> uh, uh. As far as the other people, yeah, there's just so many people of you know, kind of come and gone. A lot of famous people bought sticks, but you never heard anything. Why do you think that is? What, what's the, why isn't there the, the Jimi Hendrix of the Chapman stick yet? Well, even though, well, this is a, just my theory. I don't know if it's true. I could be wrong, but it took me so long before I felt comfortable playing the stick that maybe the same thing is true for you know, other musicians, even though they might be famous, uh, you know, on keyboards or guitar or another instrument, you know, the stick to them was also so foreign. They just, you know, didn't feel like they were quite ready yet. And, you know, the stick takes some time. You can't just pick this thing up and make beautiful music with it, uh, you know, in a month. It just, just doesn't work that way. It, it really takes a lot of finesse. So, you know, I imagine... A lot of famous musicians would get it and they'd open it up and they'd pick it up and try to play it for an hour and go, mm, okay, we'll put it under the bed. We'll get to it after the next tour. And then it just, they just don't get, get around to it. I had an instrument once that I gave to a friend as partial collateral towards a car. When I moved back to California, I was pretty much penniless. And so he helped me out. And not long after that, I came back to him and said, okay, I'm ready to buy the instrument back. And he goes, oh, um, I'm sorry, Mike, but I sold it to Tom Waits. 
who he had built a swimming pool for in Sonoma County. I go, oh, great. And apparently Tom Waits, not the, I don't know, not the friendliest guy, doesn't really want to you know, meet new people. And so <laughs> Waits had this instrument. It was a custom 10-string made for me by Emmett in 1989. And so Waits had this thing at least five years. And finally my friend got up the courage to ask Waits if I could buy it back. Waits said, yeah, I can never figure the damn thing out. And so we, it, it was like a spy movie the way this all happened, but I got the instrument back. It had sat in his barn for five years. Wow. And the instrument was still in perfect shape, but you know how the uh, foam in the instrument cases tends to just uh, uh, deteriorate over years. Yes. So the the foam had, you know, kind of just turned to little black particles. I cleaned off the stick, put on a new set of strings, adjusted the truss rod, and it worked as good as it did the day I got it. Yes. Yeah. But the point being, it sat there in Tom Waits' barn for five years because, you know, I guess he couldn't figure it out right away. Yeah. yeah that's and I think that's, I think that's why a lot of people don't stay with the stick is, you know, they expect you know, miracles right away mm. because they, you know, may have a, a certain amount of expertise on another instrument. So they think it's going to be instantly transferred to the stick and it doesn't happen. So they get frustrated. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why I named the book stick with it. It takes a while for it to, you know, give up its treasures, but they're there if you just stay with it. That's a, that's a neat theme that runs throughout the book too, of, of, you know, of, of staying with it and, you know, being true to your, true to yourself and true to your, you know, your, your, um, I'm not sure what the right word is, your, your dreams, your goals, your aspirations and putting in the time, putting in the effort and, um, you know, and that's, and that also mirrors the, the story of the instrument, you know, as you're talking about Emmett, um, you're, you're talking about people needing time to figure out the instrument. You know, it was, geez, I'm, we had to have to even do the math to figure out when he was, you know, he was looking for new sounds, right? Basically from the beginning of his guitar career, you know, and uh, back in the early sixties. And that just, you know, that just continued on throughout his, throughout his career until he, in that kind of flash of an instant, he started tapping. Um, but yeah, just that, that commitment, it, it took him years to figure out the instrument or to figure out the technique and then to figure out the instrument from that too. So, you know, kind of an interesting parallel there, you know, between that thought of, of, you know, why, why the people, you know, maybe not, um, yeah, run with it right away and, you know, don't have that time or that, that ability to invest in, in creating a relationship with the instrument. And just to go back and elaborate on a point you just made was that even Emmett himself was learning the instrument. Mm. And I clearly remember at some of my earliest lessons, I, you know, I'd drive two hours in LA, I'd show up and it would be all excited. He goes, look, I've come up with this new technique. And he, you know, demonstrate it for me. And he, he was like a kid. Right. He was so excited. He had just found a new way to do something on the instrument he created. So yes, he was literally learning it. We were kind of learning it together. I mean, he was way, way, way ahead of me. And 
uh, Emmett's intelligence just never, never failed to astound me because it, it, 50% of everything he ever said to me just sort of went right over my head. I mean, here I am just like a, you know, a 20 year old kid. And, uh, he's, he was 20 years my senior and, you know, very well read, very well researched. And he just had a, a mind that, that I always emulated. He, he could, uh, he could concentrate on several subjects at once, which is something I'd never been good at. You know, I can, I can concentrate on about one thing at a time, but the excitement that he exhibited when he found something new and sharing it with me at a lesson was just you know, priceless memory. Yeah, that's funny. And, and I know you realize how lucky you are to, to have been there for, you know, the birth of the instrument and the birth of this, this whole movement, really. Um, I know, I know that you feel, and then, and then you know that you're lucky to be there. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think I, I really appreciate the book and you sharing your stories and, and letting us have a glimpse back there into that as well. You know, it's not, it's not every day that a, a new technique, a new instrument is created and, and has success. Um, and you know, the glimpse that you've given us into, uh, into those, into the birth of that is, is, um, you know, again, that's, that's one of the reasons why I feel like yours is such an important story and I'm very glad that you shared it. Well, well, thanks. I, I had to cut out dozens of stories. <laughs> so there's a part two. I, I, I because, two. you know, it's kind of like, well, geez, who wants to pick up and read a, you know, 300,000 word <laughs> book? I mean, you know, I mean, you know, here, here's my story. It's 900 pages long. I was like, sure. I couldn't do that. So I've got plenty of other stories and, uh, you know, all the little pieces of memorabilia that I've collected over the years, which, which helps me, which helps to take me back to those exact moments. Mm. Have you ever heard a song or a melody and it takes you right back to, uh, you know, the day you broke up with your first girlfriend, the day you got your first car, when, when you graduated, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And yeah. so, so all of these little pieces of memorabilia to me, they're like touchstones. Mm. All I do is just touch it and boom, it just takes me right back there yeah. to that time. And there's just so many more memories that I could have written about, but you know, I wanted to keep it. I wanted to keep it so it wouldn't be that big or bad. And again, it, all it is, it's just my story, nothing more. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, create a literary masterpiece. What I really want to do, I just wanted to document the early time with Emmett and, you know, the early history of the instrument from my perspective as a, as a student. Yes. Yeah. Without giving away any, you know, any of the, the, the big, the big moments, what are a couple of highlights, um, you know, from your story that are, are either in the book or maybe that one or two that, that didn't make it in the book? Well, uh, Emmett became a very busy man in the late 80s. As you and all stick players know, you know, Tony Levin was out there with both Peter Gabriel, who had blockbuster monster hits, and you could hear the stick bass. And then there was also King Crimson and Tony Levin again. But King Crimson, Tony Levin, one of my most favorite stick players of all was always Alfonso Johnson 
because the way he approached it was with so much soul. And what I'm getting to here is once once Emmett started getting really super busy, you know, our lessons stopped after about 10, 11, 12 years, some, something like that. And Emmett was trying to do so many other things. And so that's kind of when I was, you know, set out on my own. Here you go. Fly away and be free. Good luck. And um, in in that time period, I did, you know, all kinds of strange gigs. And here I am the guy with the freaky instrument no one's ever even heard of. And those were some of the times that really stand out for me. And then the, when in the 2000s, when I finally became suddenly unemployed, thanks to a big downturn in the telecom sector, I, I laid there on the couch one day, I'm thinking, what should I do? Oh my God, what am I gonna do now? Oh no, I don't have a job. A voice came into my head and said, well, you can play the stick, can't you? And I, I bolted upright and I go, yeah. And all of a sudden I got all these ideas of how I could play festivals and fairs with the stick. And I just acted on that and that's exactly what happened. And some of the, some of the experiences, you know, out on the road doing festivals and fairs are just <laughs> mind boggling, not to mention hilarious. That's awesome. What's what's next? Um, well, I'm I've got a couple of albums on the back burner. I've taken uh, an interest in public speaking, so I'm trying to uh, uh, blend the music with humor and and speaking. Try to find new audiences and new ways I can do the stick. You know, after you're the guy out there in the middle of the street playing at a festival with 100,000 people, um, I don't know, it just loses its appeal after a while. So I'm going in a lot of other different directions, but all with the stick is my basic foundation because, you know, that's kind of where I came from. Yeah, that's amazing. Awesome. Well, you crossed off all my questions, you know, a while ago. Um, any Any final thoughts, anything I missed? Um, no, you didn't miss anything, but the one thing I want to stress again is if you're a stick player, you are so lucky. <laughs> That's awesome. Get, get out there, stick with it, yeah. show them what you can do. Uh, you know, don't be like me and wait 20 years before you start recording and going out and sharing your gift. But one of the, one of the things that really uh, got me was in 2011, I'm living in in uh, Lahaina on the island of Maui. I had a job there for six years as the resident musician with the Lahaina Art Society. And I'm there playing one day and my wife is sitting next to me and we're selling CDs to tourists and I play all day. All of a sudden a man walks up to me from out of the crowd. It's Carlos Santana. Nice. He walks right up to me he puts a hundred dollar bill in my tip jar and he comes up and he goes, that was beautiful. What are you playing? And I had to admit that I was just improvising. And he said, it's so beautiful. He goes, it made me feel good. And it made everyone under this tree feel good. And he said, not many people know how to, he knew what the stick was, but he goes, not many people know how to play that. And he goes, you really have a gift that comes from the heart and I can feel it. Nice. And 
to me, that was just like, you know, one of my idols just walked up to me on the street from out of nowhere to tell me I had a gift. And I'm trying to share with you and other stick players and anyone listening, everyone out there has a gift and you're all guided to use that gift. And so do it, go do it. All right. Well, that's I, enough for me. No, trying to get I, all philosophical. No, but that's great, and, and I hear that in your music. I've I've heard that in your music for years and years, um, and I that comes through in the book. And again, that's that's one of the reasons. Another one of the reasons why I, I enjoy it, and and was uh, you know again honored to be a part of of you know whatever whatever I was able to do to to uh, to help it you know see the light of day and and um, and be there for others to enjoy. I'm happy to have been there and, and honored to have been a part of that too. I'm I'm always grateful. I'll always be grateful for the help you gave and the encouragement because I don't even know if I would have finished it had you not kept pushing me a little bit, little bit here, a little bit there. Thank you very much, Jim. Awesome. Well, like I say, yeah, my pleasure and, and, and right back at you too. Thanks again to Mike and for everyone listening for jumping in on this first episode. There's much more to come. Episodes two and three are already in the queue and you can find show notes with links to music and the topics discussed in this episode and information about upcoming episodes at jimreilly.ca slash podcast. Take care, everyone. Hi, Tom. It's Jim Riley. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. We finally meet. Finally meet. Oh, awesome. Thank you.